This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of All Things Considered CX. I'm your host, Bob Asman, the founder of Innovative CX Solutions, a past chairperson of the CXPA, and a practitioner with many years of transforming global operations and designing better customer experiences. Together with our guests and listeners, we seek to discuss, challenge, and create new understanding about how to inspire better experiences in response to ever-changing customer expectations. Hello, this is Bob Asman, and welcome to another episode of All Things Considered CX. I'm really excited to have joining me today, John Pico, who I followed for a number of years. He's an author of a new book coming out soon and uh, very much in tune with customer experience and what's happening with customer experience these days. So I'd like to Welcome, John. And John, would be great if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Uh, thanks, Bob. I'm, I'm glad to be here with you. Um, so uh, my name is John Pico, and I'm the founder and principal of Watermark Consulting, which is a customer experience advisory firm uh, that basically helps companies to impress their customers and inspire their employees. Excellent. Thanks, John. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the landmark studies that Watermark Consulting has done. But first, John, I'm always curious, and so are our listeners, about uh, your career path and our guests' career path. Like, you know, it's very seldom do people wake up one day when they're younger and say, I want to be a customer experience professional. And uh, so we always are curious as to how did you get to where you are? How did you form Watermark Consulting? What are kind of those benchmark career uh, path journeys that you've had uh, to get you where you are today? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I, I first got the business bug uh, when I was in college and uh, my college uh, had a, a radio station that um, received no funding from the university. Uh, so the only way that it operated was it had a, a people had to sell ads on the radio station. And so I wanted to work at the radio station as a DJ. And um, I think it was my sophomore year, I went there and they basically said, Oh, yeah, yeah, no, sure, we'll give you a show. But if you want it to be uh, anywhere other than, you know, in the dead of night, uh, you need to bring money into the station by selling ads. And so that was kind of my introduction into business was selling radio ads like door to door uh, for this college radio station. And that's actually where I first got the sense of what customer experience was and how broad it was, because I started to see really subtle things like how just the visual appeal of a pricing sheet that you would hand over to people who are considering radio advertising, how that could actually influence their uh, purchase decision or you know their willingness to even make a decision. And, um, and so that was kind of how I got the business bug. And that's how I you know started to get interested in customer experience. And Eventually, I graduated from college, um, went and got my MBA, uh, and, uh, and then started working um, at uh, AIG, actually, which at the time was uh, not a well-known company, more well-known these days, given what happened during the Great Recession, uh, and uh, ended up in a rotational management training program, which re really started to expose me to different functional areas within the firm. Um, and that was kind of a theme through my career as I moved on to other roles. 
I never really planned it this way, but um, the last corporate role that I had, uh, I actually at various points, uh, it was a Fortune 100 financial services firm. And at various points, I led service, sales, marketing, distribution, even IT. And what was unique about that was, you know, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, uh, one of the biggest challenges, I think, for companies delivering a great customer experience is the silos in the organization don't realize that they're kind of working at cross purposes. Um, and so the ability to step into the shoes of all of those different functional silos and actually see how they contribute to the customer experience, I thought that gave me a very unique perspective. Um, and I had always, I was always interested in, in, in setting up my own consultancy at some point and decided to do that back in 2009 uh, because I thought it was just a unique perspective to bring to the market, you know, having stepped in the shoes of the head of IT, the head of sales, the head of service, um, and helping companies to really coalesce all of those different silos around the customer experience imperative, since that's often where they, where companies fall short. You know, John, first of all, I, the reason I ask this question is because there's some really interesting tidbits that come out. So now knowing uh, you wanted to be a DJ. You have a DJ voice. I have to tell you that, John. So uh, I could I could hear you playing the hits of the I'll Be Kind, the '90s and 2000s, right? Uh, in your in your college years. I'm not ashamed. I played oldies. I, it was it was '60s and '70s music. So I'm not ashamed of it. Okay, good. It, it's okay for you to admit it. I just can't accuse you of that. Um, but but the second interesting tidbit that you talk about is this idea of walking in their shoes. You know, rarely is a CX professional's career path um, a vertical. It, it, it zigzags. And I really like this concept that you've talked about in your career path about, you know, getting exposure to all these different functions so you know what they do and you can better understand uh, the challenges that they have in their business function and create a better experience. Yeah, I, I think that that really is, in my view, a really important ingredient in the success for any customer experience professional. Um, and not everybody is going to have the luxury of, of uh, in a career of rotating between all of those different functions. But at the very least, I think that they should aspire uh, to to immerse themselves uh, in, in the lives of their colleagues that work in these other functional areas to really understand, um, you know, their lot in life, their challenges, uh, and, um, you know, what they're really seeking to accomplish. I think also not only can you learn from those other functional leaders, but it's also an opportunity to really convey to them how their organization fits into the bigger picture, the, the larger mosaic of that organization delivering a, a great leading impressive uh, customer experience. Because as I said, it's, um, you know, it's just so easy for people within their little boxes in the organization to be very focused on, on their management objectives without realizing how they contribute either, you know, positively or potentially negatively uh, to a, a larger purpose that the organization has in terms of, of cultivating loyalty, promoting repurchase and referral behavior. So yeah, I think, um, I think that cross silo awareness is, is really critical. And I think that the companies that do customer experience well, I think you find that they have executive teams 
that embrace that approach and have a healthy respect for the role that each function uh, plays uh, in delivering that experience. Even those functions that do not directly interface with the customer, mind you. You know, I think that, uh, for example, the mark of great companies are the ones where the legal department, the compliance department, have a healthy respect for the goal of creating a great customer experience and understand the role that that they play uh, in achieving that. I think that's so true. And so often I hear um, what we might refer to as the back office operations say, well, I don't touch the customer, so I don't need to be worried about that. But Boy, they sure are wrong about that. Yeah, and, and you know, it's funny you mentioned those two words. Uh, I've, I, I wrote an article on this once. I think that those are two words that should be stricken from the vocabulary of any organizational leader. You know, the term back office, uh, words have a way of shaping people's thoughts, people's cognitions. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that leaders realize that when they use the term back office, uh, it, it has a negative connotation potentially for people that are working in those roles. You know, it's almost like you don't clean up nice enough for us to put you in front of the customer. So you're in the back office. Um, and it, it also, it, it impairs that group's ability to get any sense that uh, what I am doing actually impacts the customer. Um, because while you might not be customer facing, you're most definitely customer impacting. So yeah, that term back office, um, I, I think it's, it's one that needs to go into the trash heap. No kidding. It's, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If, yeah. if, you're, if I'm told I'm in the back office, I'm going to say I'm in the back office and not serve customers. Yeah. And, and then you wonder why, well, why aren't your employees customer uh, centric? You know, well, it's because you're telling them that, you know, they're not involved with the customer. They're in that back room and what they do doesn't directly impact the customer. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I'm going to confess to our listeners that I have been a longtime fan of Watermark Consulting's Leaders and Laggards study about the ROI of CX. And uh, selfishly uh, here, John, I wonder if you would take a couple of minutes to explain that study, because I think it's so impactful. And, and every time I use the watermark consulting graph in a presentation or explain it to students if I'm teaching, it, it just hits the mark. And it's, it's an aha moment for people to look at that study and realize the importance of, of the ROI of CX. Yeah, well, it's great to hear that, uh, that, that you're a fan of the study and that uh, you found that people have that reaction to it. That's certainly what I have found too when I put it in front of executives who might be overly skeptical about the value of, of customer experience. But, um, you know, but before I sort of explain the study, let, let me touch on kind of the origins of it, because uh, the study was first, um, the first iteration of the study came out a little over a decade ago, and it was actually right after I launched Watermark. And it kind of was born out of frustration, um, frustration that I saw in my corporate roles, but also then when I became an entrepreneur and launched my own consultancy, It was the frustration that I saw business executives were more than willing to take a leap of faith on all kinds of business decisions that had questionable ROI, Um, you know, things like hiring a celebrity CEO for millions of dollars, uh, things like um, engaging in large mergers and acquisitions and, you know, marking up from an accounting standpoint, the goodwill of the acquisition to sort of demonstrate that there's an ROI. And I just thought to myself, oh my gosh, you know, 
executives are taking these leaps of faith uh, all the time with these other decisions. But when it comes to arguing that they should invest more in customer experience, um, they seem very reluctant to do so. They weren't willing to take the leap of faith. They didn't feel, you know, they felt like the, the ROI was questionable, squishy in some way. And I remember it was actually the holiday time around Christmas time uh, one year, I guess it was around 2010 maybe. And I was just thinking about this and then it dawned on me. I said, you know, what language does every business executive understand? Uh, and the answer was they understand the language of shareholder value. You know, whether you're a public or private entity, you get that, the notion that your company is more valuable in the eyes of the marketplace, in the eyes of shareholders. And so I said, gee, you know, what if we crunch the numbers and figure out, if you look at the companies, the publicly traded companies that excel in customer experience uh, based on consumer feedback surveys, and you compare their shareholder returns to those that lag in customer experience, what does that look like? Uh, and so we crunched the numbers and... You know, the first time we did it, we had three years of data, uh, and and now we're up to 11 years of data. And actually, there's a new version of the study that's going to be released with my new book um, in October uh, that has 13 years of data. And basically, you look at the graphic, and it's just kind of stunning. The companies that lead in customer experience, on average, outperform those that lag by a three-to-one ratio in terms of total shareholder return. Um, and the pecking order is very clear. The leading firms outperform the S&P 500 uh, broader market index, and the broader market index in turn outperforms uh, the customer experience laggards. And so I think that, you know, for me, the customer experience ROI study is really the exclamation point on the case for customer experience. I mean, it is just such a vivid, compelling illustration of not only the uh, benefits and the gains that a company can achieve by delivering a consistently great experience, but also the penalty that is exacted on those that do not. Because when you look at that graphic and, and the performance of the companies that lag in customer experience, based again on what customer feedback says, uh, you know, you start to see, gee, it becomes less a question of what is the cost of delivering a better customer experience? And it's more a case of, well, what's the cost if we don't do it? Because that's pretty profound. I I couldn't agree more, John. And that's been that's an excellent explanation of the study. I I'm smiling here a little bit because uh, when I was running customer experience departments in major corporations and trying to get funding, I would use the watermark study uh, to demonstrate the need for this funding and investment, and um, I. I would laugh because I could, I could tell the data was compelling because immediately people would start asking, well, where did he get that data from? And where did that come from? And you can always tell when it's that compelling that people always question the data and the sources. And what's great about this study is it's solid. It's tracked, as you said, now with your book, 13 years, uh, it's consistent. Uh, I, I just am, am uh, really a believer in, in the ability to use the watermark study to to create a passion for investment in CX. Yeah, I, I have found personally, it's been a very useful tool for me. And I've heard from a lot of customer experience professionals, uh, you know, like yourself, who also find it's a really valuable tool for opening up a dialogue. You know, I'm not going to say that it eliminates the need to try to cost justify individual customer experience initiatives and projects. But at a macroeconomic level, 
it really just presents that kind of stunning depiction to a skeptical executive that, gee, you know, there really is something here. There's something to this. And I think that's, that's very valuable to people. No question. As a reminder, you're listening to John Pico uh, joining me today on the All Things Considered CX podcast. He's the author of the upcoming book, uh, From Impressed to Obsessed, releasing in October. John, uh, let's get into the book. And, and let me start with this first question is, where are we at? What's the state of customer experience as you see it from your perspective? Um, I, let's see, to, to put it, let to put it politely, let's just say there's a lot of room for improvement, uh, right? Um, I think that there are definitely companies out there that have nailed this, uh, you know, and, and to their credit, they never feel like they're done. I mean, this isn't a project that has a beginning and an end. This is a way of life. But there are companies out there that, um, uh, that, that really understand uh, how to do this effectively. Um, and, and what they have essentially done is raise the bar for everyone else uh, because people are evaluating their customer experiences these days, not within an industry, but across industries. Uh, so, you know, for example, I say to myself, uh, wow, you know, I can track my Amazon package uh, at every square inch of, of its journey to me, every step in, in the whole process, I can track it down to the square inch. Well, why doesn't my auto repair shop let me do that? You know, uh, I've, got, I've got my car in for the day. Why can't I go someplace and just see what is the status? What's going on with it? And so that's why I think, you know, the bar has really been raised because there are a handful of companies that just have figured out how to do this very effectively. Um, but the, the majority haven't. The majority haven't, and I think that's borne out when you look at customer feedback. You know, there was some research that uh, that I did for the book, um, consumer polls and whatnot, and it's just abysmal. I mean, people people go into business interactions expecting them to be crummy. I mean, it's that bad. Uh, you know, we we become so accustomed, so habituated to poor customer experiences that. It's like when you engage with a business, you almost don't expect for it to go smoothly. Um, and, and the irony there is that, you know, if you just do make it go smoothly, that in and of itself can actually be a competitive differentiator in, in today's day and age. Uh, and so, um, yeah, you know, I think that uh, I also say that I think that companies are delusional. Uh, with regard to customer experience. That's something else that uh, in the book, there's, there's some research around that. And, uh, and the idea that um, uh, companies think they're doing a lot better than they actually are. And I sort of call it a chasm of perception. Uh, you know, there are studies that show you go to executives and ask them, hey, how's your company and customer experience? And they give glowing reviews. And then you go to their customers and their customers are like, you gotta be kidding me. You know, I mean, it's awful. And so I think that's a real problem because if that if companies don't have a clear uh, view of how they're really doing in this regard, then there's no chance that they're going to make progress to improve it. So I think there's definitely a lot of runway here for for companies to do better. No question about it, John. Uh, are we using the pandemic as an excuse for poor customer experiences? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I, I think we are, uh, you know, it's, um, there's actually, uh, there's a statistic quoted in the book that comes from the American customer satisfaction index, which is, uh, 
a very well-known measure uh, uh, across industries of customer satisfaction. Um, actually, after the watermark customer experience ROI study came out, um, the uh, customer American Customer Satisfaction Index, that organization came out with a, a stock performance study as well, which uh, reiterates the shareholder advantage of customer experience leading companies. But anyway, the ACSI index, as it's called, you know, back in 1994, uh, if you look at where it was in 1994, and if you look at where it was in 2021, it's actually declined. Uh, you know, and that amazes me because that's like over 25 years for all of the stuff that customer that companies and customer experience professionals said that they've been doing to kind of, you know, advance the quality of the experience that's delivered. Uh, we're just kind of treading water. Um, and those are statistics. I mean, it got even worse with the pandemic, but that was the case even before the pandemic. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the pandemic obviously has added a you know new wrinkle into it all. But I don't think that you can attribute the sorry state of many companies' customer experiences uh, to uh, to the pandemic. Um, that was something that was brewing, you know, well before COVID nineteen was ever circulating around the globe. <laughs> so true. I'm reminded of another study that was that came out a number of years ago, and it said uh, uh, asked executives and firms, uh, you know, do you believe customer experience is your number one priority? And some ninety percent plus answered yes. And then they were asked, so do you have a customer experience initiative or program underway? Are you investing in CX? And and less than thirty percent said yes. So. Uh, the words and the actions certainly weren't uh, weren't aligning in that, in that yeah. study as there, there's well. There's a big say-do <laughs> gap uh, in this arena, absolutely. No question. So, John, I, I got a sneak peek at your book um, uh, from Impressed to Obsessed releasing in October, and I saw there's 12 principles for creating great loyalty-enhancing experiences. Do you want to uh, tease our guests with maybe a couple of examples of what those 12 principles are all about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, you know, uh, first, just to kind of frame the, the, the book for people, um, you know, that really the central idea behind it is, is this notion that if you're aspiring to satisfy your customers, then you're aspiring to mediocrity. Um, because to create real sustainable competitive advantage, you can't just rely on satisfying the people that you work with, you need to impress them. Uh, you need to leave an indelible positive impression in their minds that makes them eager to work with you again and, and to tell others about you. Uh, and forging those impressions is really an exercise in shaping people's perceptions and memories. And that's really where the cognitive science of customer experience comes into play. And that's the main focus of the book. Um, because it turns out that companies that do this really well are really all using the same set of science-based experience design techniques to create those memorable impressions. Uh, and the book really distills those techniques into a dozen actionable principles that can be applied to any business, any kind of customer, whether you're working with consumers or colleagues, institutions or intermediaries, employees, or even employment candidates. Um, and describing those principles, you know, and how to use them, that's what the book's about. Also, we were talking about the customer experience ROI study. It's worth noting that it was really from that study that uh, the idea for the book really germinated because I've spent you know, a career figuring out those companies that are excelling at customer experience and are delivering those uh, outsized shareholder uh, returns. 
I've been trying to figure out, well, what exactly is it that they're doing? How are they shaping that onstage experience that customers see? Um, and that's really where the 12 principles came from. It kind of, uh, you know, boiling down their, their, their secret sauce, if you will, to those. And, uh, you know, in terms of sharing a couple of examples with your listeners, I, I guess what I'd say is, you know, the principles are not sort of the well-worn uh, customer loyalty platitudes that you might be familiar with. They are very much psychology-based. Um, they're, 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 they're cognitive science-based because what I have found is that companies that do this well understand that they're not just in the business of shaping customers' experiences, they're in the business of shaping their, their memories uh, and their perceptions. Um, and so, you know, one actually, uh, uh, one, one example I'll give you, which I think is a really neat one, I, it's almost magical. It's uh, the principle is called giving the perception of control. Uh, and the way this one works is, you know, we uh, are control freaks, just human beings. Uh, you know, we like to have our hands on the steering wheel. Um, but the problem is that for many businesses, you can't give your customer their, you know, the hands on the steering wheel. Like the customer needs to delegate uh, to you, whether it's a doctor performing a procedure, whether it's a real estate agent selling your home, uh, or a financial advisor preparing you for retirement. But the risk is the minute you start delegating uh, to another party, um, the risk is that the customer experience is going to feel less good. Um, and so there's this notion um, in psychology research about perceived control, where it's been found that if you give people the sense that they have control, even if they don't really have control, they feel much better about the experience. Um, and the book actually talks about a study that was done by a guy named Richard Mills when he was a psychology student at USC. Um, and he went to his local Red Cross uh, blood donation center and he um, did an experiment where he took one group of people and uh, he actually had the phlebotomist, the nurse that was taking the blood draw, ask them, which arm would you like to use for the procedure? Um, and so they could choose. And then the other uh, experimental group, they weren't given any choice. They, the nurse just took their non-dominant arm. And so Richard Mills found that the people who were given the choice of which arm to draw blood from actually said that they felt uh, afterwards much better about the experience. They said they actually felt less pain uh, going, uh, going through the blood draw. And so then he repeated the experiment and he said, okay, you know, now instead of giving people the choice of which arm, uh, we're going to show them a two minute video that's actually going to describe in detail what they're, what they're going to feel during the blood donation process, psychologically and physiologically. And again, those people who watched that video before the blood draw, they came out of the procedure and they were like, they reported feeling much better about it, um, had a much better experience, had less pain. And what this is illustrating is it's two ways to give people the perception of control. Um, the first is conforming the customer experience to people's thoughts. That's like saying, I want to use my left arm for this procedure. It's a small, seemingly insignificant choice. But by giving me that choice, I feel like I'm exerting control over my surroundings. And that makes me feel better about the experience. And then the other way, not conforming the experience to people's thoughts, but conforming people's thoughts to the experience. That's the two-minute video that they showed, which basically set expectations for people about what this procedure is going to look like, what this experience, how it's going to unfold. And again, just by doing that, you give people the sense of control because I know what's coming around the corner. I know what's on the horizon. There's no ambiguity. And so I love this principle because 
The reason it's magical is it can actually make people feel better about the experience that you're already delivering to them without actually changing the underlying mechanics of the experience. You know, you're, you're giving them the choice of arm for the blood draw. You're showing them a two minute video setting expectations. It, it, it doesn't change the fact that there's somebody with a, a sharp needle coming at you, you know, ready to draw your blood, but yet you feel better about the experience. And so that's an example of one of the psychology based principles in the book um, that, that really gets to this notion of not just engineering the mechanics of the experience that you deliver, but really shaping people's perceptions and sculpting their memories of the encounter. And, and perceptions are so important. And I really like um, the psychological and the scientific part of what you're talking about, John. And, and uh, we, we overlooked this in your, in your early introduction, but you have a background in cognitive science. So these 12 principles are well-rooted in, in science and, and uh, human behavior. Yeah, that's you're you're absolutely right. That's something I forgot to mention in my background. Uh, but uh, while I was a budding DJ in college, uh, my major was actually cognitive science. And I have to admit, I never actually expected to use cognitive science uh, in my uh, professional life. But um, things have come full circle. And yes, that plays an important part in, in all the book's insights. And what's what's also intriguing in that example, that principle that you shared. Uh, you know, I can hear people listening to this podcast right now saying, oh, we could never do that. But you emphasize really clearly that the underlying experience stays the same. It's just how we provide it to the customer. Yeah. You know, I think like uh, an example that, that people could relate to very easily that shows the power of that particular principle is the idea of line queuing. Uh, a known weight in line feels much better to people than an unknown weight. Um, and that gets to this notion of conforming people's thoughts to the experience. It, you go to Disney World, and what are they very you know, diligent about? They're making sure that at the beginning of the line, there's a sign there that's dynamically updated that says how long the wait is. Right there, you're giving people the sense that they have control because uh, you know they know what's coming next. They know how long a wait. In truth, you not only have given them the perception of control, you've given them actual control because if they don't like the, the length of the wait, they can just step out of line and come back another time. And that costs nothing, right? Um, no matter what business you're in, it probably, it'll cost you nothing just to do a better job of setting expectations with your sales prospects and with your customers about the experience that they're about to go through. And, and the research shows very clearly that merely by doing that, you're going to make people feel better about the encounter. Excellent. I, I think I could spend a few more hours talking with you, John, and asking you questions, but, but I'll behave myself and wait for the book to be released so I can read the details. But before we, we end our podcast today, uh, your final thoughts, advice, words of wisdom for the experienced professionals listening uh, on our podcast today. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I would say, I just go back to, to our earlier uh, discussion about really having a keen understanding of all of the different people within your organization that you need to engage with and that really need to coalesce around the customer experience imperative. Um, it's very important for those individuals to view you as a customer experience professional as a, a source of valued insight and help 
rather than some enterprise function that's looking to get me to do something that I don't want to do. So that's certainly one thing I would say. And then the second I would say too is just be careful not to over-engineer this. Um, you know, something that that I really stress in the book, and and you know, as we just talked about with the perception of control principle, moving the needle on customer experience doesn't always require, doesn't exclusively require uh, multi-million dollar capital investments and you know, all kinds of big bureaucratic decisions uh, that have to go through different levels of approval. There are so many small, subtle things that companies can do immediately uh, that, will, that will fundamentally improve the quality of the experience uh, that the organization is delivering. And, and the book covers lots of examples of that. And not only does that improve the experience, it does something else very important for customer experience professionals. And that is it lends credibility to the entire effort. Um, you know, I've worked with a lot of companies helping them navigate these waters. And one thing that I think many underestimate is the importance of just building credibility through some, through some small wins at the very beginning. And so if you take, if you make some of these small, small subtle changes, it's obviously going to have incremental uh, value in terms of advancing the quality of the experience. But you could argue that the, the, the even greater value that it brings is just showing both your customers and your employees that this customer experience improvement effort is not corporate window dressing. It's something that we're taking seriously and we're making real progress on. And you know, once you demonstrate that credibility and you start to get people on the bus, you start to build momentum that's gonna make your job as a customer experience professional much easier. I couldn't agree more, John. I've been an advocate of quick wins to gain momentum for many years. So um, those words uh, of wisdom certainly ring true for me. Mm -hmm. um, listeners, you've been listening to John Pico, author of the upcoming book, uh, From Impressed to Obsessed, releasing in October, as well as principal at Watermark Consulting and its founder, uh, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, how might our guests uh, connect with you should they desire not only to, uh, to get the book, of course, but um, learn more about uh, Watermark Consulting? Sure. So uh, a couple of ways. Um, first, for the book, I would encourage them to visit the book's official website, which uh, they can find at impressedtoobsessed.com. And that's the number two, impressed, the number two, obsessed.com. Uh, and then to connect with me, uh, as well as learn more about uh, Watermark Consulting uh, and the other work that I do as part of Watermark Consulting, they can visit the Watermark website, which is at watermarkconsult.net. Excellent. Thank you, John. Listeners, this has been another episode of All Things Considered CX. I'm your host, Bob Asman. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your network and stay tuned for another podcast about All Things Considered CX. Thanks for listening to this episode of All Things Considered CX. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Subscribe to our show, follow me on LinkedIn, and visit my website at InnovativeCX.com for more insights on creating better experiences. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.